book two chapter six of the mask by florence irwin this librivox recording is in the public domain as spring approached alison began to long for the country the springtime had always been her favorite season she had loved to wander outside of coningsboro and into the country to follow murmuring brooks to delve into woods and copses to smell the fresh damp mould and to search for the first green sprouts and blossoms every spring of her life she had done this and now she was cooped up in a brick-walled brick-paved prison where the only response to the call of the season was languor and listlessness as she looked forward to the long summer months she felt that she could not possibly bear to spend them so she would coax bill to coningsboro for a visit never again would she want to live permanently live in as small and quiet a place as the town which had sheltered her girlhood but she thought how wonderful it would be if coningsboro could be picked up bodily and carried to the outskirts of new york perhaps there was a coningsboro out there already waiting to be discovered one day at luncheon she turned to her husband phil she said i think it would be lovely to have a little home in the country the country no thank you no country for me i'd go crazy phil howland would rather have lived in a gutter than in the country oh i don't mean far away like coningsboro i mean just outside of new york where we could run in every day if we wanted to and how about the evenings that's where the rub would come we'd soon have a circle of friends and we'd have our own home and our interests the trouble with this life is that it's too detached there are no responsibilities and very few duties we have no servant so we eat out that cuts housekeeping to a minimum as to church i go and i come home again and that ends it there is no connection with the church life and i have no work to do i have nowhere that i could even ask a class of poor children to come i rarely speak to a woman and i have nothing in common with those i do know except my own cousins and they lead such a different life that i see them only occasionally i read of course that is the great salvation but i should read anywhere there is no exercise except walking on the streets i can never run out bareheaded into the open i miss my tennis i miss my occupations oh phil dear if you would only believe it and try it you'd find that a real home would be worth all the theatres and restaurants in the world i tell you al i'd die in the country i'd get no inspiration for my work that is the greatest point of all i am sure that you would i'm convinced that that's precisely what you need you get no inspiration here this whole winter you have done nothing but unsigned hack work she saw his face darkening ominously this was a sore subject and she hurried on i'm not blaming you i am sure that you can't help it and i am equally sure that i've discovered the reason you need different surroundings a more inspiring life i need nothing of the sort al replied her husband pettishly for heaven's sake allow me the credit of knowing my own needs i need mental companionship and rubbing up against brains other than my own you'd get that in a country home 
we'd have neighbors and you could invite your town friends out and how about the winters and the snowstorms lord how i despise a snowstorm in the country her mind flew back again to that snowy walk outside coningsboro and the sunset lights and phil's apostrophe to the kingdom of purity just words she supposed in the light of her later knowledge her husband continued imagine me ploughing through snowdrifts every night to get back to my ideal country home but phil that's just the point if you had a business that took you in town every day if you had to leave early and return late i'd never say a word about it but you haven't you need never go into the city except when it suited you great scott al you'd have me raving crazy on your hands inside of six months cooped up in the country from the time the first snow fell until spring melted the last drift not on your life don't be absurd phil i merely meant that you needn't go out on snowy days unless you wanted to i could see that horrible expanse of white glare from my own windows then you could pull down the shades and sit in the dark she couldn't help laughing at his absurdities and if you couldn't stand it you could call a hack and drive to the station and go to the lovely black muddy city you touch the exact point when you say hack suburban hacks cost money they don't begin to cost as much as constant drinks in restaurants our income is as big as elsa's and roscoe's i'm sure and they have a darling little home of their own yes but coningsboro isn't new york you put elsa's house in a new york suburb and we couldn't afford to touch it oh phil i'm sure we could and i know we couldn't just go out into the suburbs and look at a few houses and ask their rents if you want to be convinced i should be willing to bet a good deal that we could get a little country house for the rent that we pay for this apartment then it's lucky you haven't the chance to place your bet for you'd lose your money we couldn't possibly do it and look at the size of these rooms and the convenience of the situation besides which we have as you seem to forget our heat and light included and we need practically no service in the country there'd be servants and they'd always be leaving there'd be coal to buy and there'd be a furnace to burn it in who'd take care of that furnace not i i warrant you not any maid that you'd find and there'd be lights and water rent and hack fare and train fare and club dues if you got your tennis and parties to give if you made friends and grass to cut in summer and snow to shovel in the winter no i thank you well of course if you don't want to go you'll never do it i know that very well but you exaggerate everything horribly there are living expenses everywhere and in a country life while there would be some extra ones there would also be plenty of offsets which you never even mention also if you worked more as i am sure you would in a different atmosphere you would sell more and we should have a bigger income my dear girl you quite miss the point you take the position that work is my end and aim in life it is not it is merely a means to the end work per se does not attract me i love life and i must work to live here you are proposing to take me to a life that i loathe in order that i may work like the devil and thus earn sufficient money 
to continue to live the life that i loathe provided that i also continue to work like the devil for the life of her alison could not help laughing he was witty there was no doubt about it the laughter quite restored phil's good humor i'll tell you what it is he said if we had money enough to run a decent little place and keep one motor and come in town to spend a night or two at a good hotel every now and then i'd be your man for the country find me that much money and i'll move with you tomorrow the conversation though it killed some budding hopes of alison's succeeded in putting a new thought into her mind she would go out and look at small suburban houses and see if phil were right and whether he knew what he was talking about she hated to spend the money for even such inexpensive trips but perhaps the end would justify the means for four successive days she sneaked off immediately after luncheon and did not return until dinner-time she went by train she went by boat she went by trolley and in the end she was convinced that phil was right beautiful houses there were but naturally she didn't even look at them modest houses there were and their prices were stupendous little houses there were and they were both unattractive and inconvenient in the newest settlements nearly all the trees had been sacrificed and in consequence the chief beauty was gone alison gazed on incredibly small parallelograms bare as the palm of her hand marked out by stakes and fabulously priced no offers of easy terms of payment could tempt any sensible person to overlook their glaring disadvantages leaving plots at which she had looked only because of the agent's forceful personality she turned her eyes on houses small they were inconvenient claptrap badly built standing unshaded in the sun and with piazzas and rooms the size of a thimble one agent had a house that possessed a singular advantage that he had never seen duplicated the kitchen held two stationary tubs there being no separate laundry either of these tubs could equally well be used as a dishpan because of its situation in the kitchen a butler's pantry then became as superfluous as a laundry and between the tubs there was a removable partition when it was taken out the two tubs were thrown into one and became a servant's bathtub a wonderful scheme in the new sections sidewalks existed in the imagination only although signboards bore the names of streets which in their present form were nothing but tracts of coarse grass in the older settlements and the villages sidewalks and streets there were indeed but they were unlovely cheap houses and cheaper shops jostled each other for position curbs were bordered with refuse barrels and lunch wagons vendors of peanuts and hokey-pokey called their wares and trundled their wagons trolley-cars creaked past whistles blew from factories and the answering crowds were nearly all dirty starved-looking wild-faced foreigners garish saloons invited and staggering examples of their hospitality zigzagged from gutters to walls and back again country peace indeed alison made humorous confession to her husband of her explorations and that ended the talk of a home in the country
one night in late april alison woke suddenly to the consciousness of odd sounds she looked around and saw that she was alone in the room raising herself on her elbow she listened intently there was certainly someone in the living room she could hear a stealthy tread perhaps it was phil if so he would soon come in and join her she waited and waited but he did not come and the sounds did not cease and presently the first pale rays of dawn began to mitigate the darkness the girl could stand it no longer rising she slipped into dressing-gown and mules and made her way toward the living-room all the way down the hall she could hear that steady muffled tread she was not exactly afraid but she was trembling violently the thought crossed her mind that she must some day buy a revolver and learn to use it stopping at the living-room door she looked in the tramping man was her husband but she hardly recognized him white to greenness haggard wild-eyed disheveled he paced back and forth biting his finger-ends and staring into space phil she whispered for her voice failed her phil what is the matter he stood and faced her for a long spell he didn't seem even to recognize her finally he spoke through lips that moved stiffly how much money have you he asked at first she thought that she could not have heard aright but he repeated the question in the same dull monotone how much money have you in the house do you mean she finally asked no anywhere in the whole world how much cash can you lay your hands on by tonight how much do you need sixteen hundred dollars i haven't anything like it a spasm passed over his face and he resumed his restless march what do you want with it phil i have to have it it's the money or prison or the river are you in debt yes how roulette at the word a lightning flash illumined the past to alison how had she ever been so blind those restless early evenings and mysterious late nights roulette those lazy days and hopes of sudden windfalls roulette those good days when they ate expensively and bad days when they ate cheaply roulette those uncertain fits of temper sometimes uproariously jovial oftener morosely silent and abstracted roulette with it all there was one tiny touch of relief her husband had not been spending his evenings with other women and in this she was right although no joseph phil howland would always find women to be the least of his temptations he was no squire of dames the tale came out bit by bit he had borrowed till he had no further credit he had given his note which must be met to-morrow last night hoping to make a big haul and recoup himself he had gambled all night and had lost heavily he must have sixteen hundred dollars in about twelve hours wait a moment said alison and hurried toward the bedroom they had been eating at home of late and eating lightly because the spring had affected both their appetites she had consequently been stuffing a number of bills into her secret box every little helps and it behooved them to take stock of their entire hoard of worldly wealth her drawer was neat as always 
she put her hand under the pile of smooth-lying lingerie and drew forth her box immediately she was struck with its lightness she shook it and it made no sound with trembling fingers she undid the ribbons the box was empty a thief so phil was both a gambler and a thief the words sang in her ears gambler thief gambler thief gambler thief well there wasn't anything else now everything that could happen to her had happened every blow had fallen every hope had failed there was nothing left to come she alison terry had drained life's cup to the dregs she could never suffer any more because her capacity for suffering was exhausted just as a man struck down by the hand of an assassin might in his last conscious moment say to himself well i'm gone but i can never be murdered again so did alison howland feel sure that she had struck bottom in the pit of despair returning to the living-room with the box in her hand she stood before her husband you took this yes and it is gone yes everything is gone there is no use in talking just tell me how much money you can lay your hands on i have six hundred dollars of my wedding money lying in the bank what else my quarterly allowance was paid ten days ago three hundred and seventy-five dollars twenty-five of it is already spent the rent will be due next week and we haven't another penny to live on from now to july except what your father sends we'll have to get along somehow you cannot have all of it we simply must pay the rent and keep a little something for food i'll give you two hundred of that which will be eight hundred altogether and what about the other eight i don't know you'll have to wire your family for it i will never do that nothing would make me consider it gertrude you and she are such pals you'd take ken's money under existing conditions by god he burst out i'd take any one's wake up al i simply have to have this money at once even if i steal to get it i must have it she shivered at that word can't you borrow from some of your friends i've been doing that all winter ferris shut down on me weeks ago even al keppner won't go any further then you'll have to sell something what about your watch gone already the upshot of it was that they decided to sell some of their wedding gifts but these would not make up the sum then alison had a flash of inspiration my pendant she said that one that aunt juliet sent me it is set with diamonds and a very good-sized sapphire it has never been worn it is in cartier's case and gertrude tells me that cartier is one of the biggest jewelers in paris you could take that down to tiffany's the very thing the blood was coming back to his face now he glimpsed salvation go and get it al and let's take a look at it when she returned to the room she carried a small box and a book phillips howland she said in a queer breathless voice i want you to listen to me every cent that you can hope for is mine so is the quarterly allowance 
you cannot possibly draw on it without my check the wedding gifts are mine this pendant is mine you are not at liberty to sell it without my consent now hear what i say not one penny not one article do you get till you give me your word of honor that you will never gamble again as long as you live you are to swear it on this book that was her ultimatum threats curses evasions pleas fell on deaf ears and in the end the man being both weak and desperate of course she won it was a strange scene the spring dawn creeping in at the windows the haggard man clutching at his reprieve the tall pale girl with unbound hair and slippered feet and the oath on that little morocco-bound bible which had been alison's confirmation gift to her dying day alison howland never forgot that april morning of course a summer in coningsboro was out of the question now phil wouldn't go she couldn't leave him and strangest phase of all she didn't want to see those dear home people face to face yet a while she knew that she couldn't act her part she had her hands full enough in the ensuing weeks she and phil had to live on next to nothing milk and biscuits made meal after meal and phil had to be watched and coaxed and scolded and threatened the evenings were awful she used to go to bed exhausted every night of her life by june it had told on her so much that she could hardly drag around she used to stand at the foot of the flight of stairs and wonder how she could ever toil up to the top she went out only when she was forced to and at last things got so bad that she realized that in spite of the expense she would have to see a doctor when she returned from the trip she looked rather frightened and that night she had something to tell her husband she wondered what he would say what he did say was this damnation well of course there's only one thing to be done and even that is devilishly expensive when phillips howland had plunged his wife into what she believed to be the nethermost depths by showing himself up as a thief and a gambler there was still one role which he had not filled murderer that role apparently he had reserved for his wife she was so stupid about it so uncomprehending of innuendo that he had eventually to put the thing much more baldly than he wanted to and of course it sounded far worse than he intended it should no scene even in their rather tumultuous life had approached the one that ensued alison heard that she was a fool that everyone did it that they couldn't afford a family she simply sat with her face so white and frightened so horror-stricken that the man before her was forced eventually to pause in his flow of logic and argument then she spoke never mention this thing again if you want me to live with you and the subject was closed he knew that he might as well reason with a stone as with that white-faced woman so he left her and went out and drank enough to take the edge off things alison alone had one of her enlightening mental flashbacks she remembered phil's repeated insistence on the fact that no flat in the world would hold more than two so that was what he had meant 
she had been dense indeed her dread of the torrid summer months in the city were removed by what seemed to be a miracle and the hand that performed that miracle was keppner's alison wondered sharply why this man was destined to play so important a part in her life he it was who had first suggested to her mind that idea of human masks which she could never forget and back to which she found herself harking so continually and now it was keppner again who was to save her from a summer which she had contemplated with such distaste keppner had a friend who was about to take a summer course at columbia as he lived out in indiana he would bring his wife with him to new york and they wanted an apartment suitable for housekeeping and with large airy rooms it must be furnished and equipped for home meals the howland's apartment precisely fitted the bill for mr and mrs flightman and the flightman's money was more than welcome to mr and mrs howland who immediately took rooms at a cheap suburban hotel this hotel was found by answering advertisements there were two great requisites from the howland's point of view proximity to new york and cheapness the latter was the greater but eventually a place was found that to the outer eye at least seemed to meet their requirements it was used as a boarding school for boys in the winter and both buildings and grounds were large and attractive but when it came to a question of food and patrons it was a very different matter as alison discovered in a surprisingly short time after taking up her abode there we all agree that money is not everything but if we are honest we are also forced to admit that it is certainly a great help particularly is it useful as a means to meeting pleasant people in a strange place in a locality where you are known where perhaps even your ancestors have been known the length of your purse makes slight difference if necessary you could almost scrub floors in a gingham apron without loss of caste but in a new place unless you can live well you won't meet the people who do live well it is not that they care more about money than do the folks back home it is that they will never even know of your existence without the money to support an establishment like theirs to haunt their haunts and tread their paths you are generally speaking powerless to meet them you can isolate yourself or you can consort with the regular patrons of inferior resorts but that is your sole choice on the other hand to those who have the money without the more desirable innate qualifications the path is often just as lonely and as thorny which only goes to show that no one class of persons has the monopoly on loneliness the name of the howland's new home was harrington hall when they arrived upon the scene the house was already well filled most of the guests had been there during the previous season and thus knew each other quite well a crowd of rakish-looking husbands departed by the morning train and returned in the late afternoon a crowd of lazy wives idled away their days and made resplendent appearances in the evenings and a crowd of ill-trained disobedient children overran the place and rendered life hideous alison spent her days out of doors or in her own room but always alone she was courteous to everyone but she consorted with no one away from the crowd she employed her time in reading writing and sewing little white garments 
The finished pile of these grew steadily. In the evenings, when she felt equal to it, she was apt to run into town with Phil and visit some roof garden. Another vista of the hectic summer life of a great city was thus opened to her. But although she made no intimates among her fellow boarders, they gave her much good food for observation and thought. From her window she could watch them on the lawns and hear them on the piazzas. Many a choice scrap went to swell the entries in her blank books. The mothers of the hotel families belonged to a race hitherto unknown to Alison. They did light laundry work in their bedrooms, and fancy work on the piazzas, and they gossiped, and that was their life. They never read, they never bothered with their children, except to side with them in their quarrels. These juvenile squabbles often resulted in adult tempests. Alison overhearing the vulgar taunts and jibes, and watching the violent friendships and equally violent hatreds, contrasted these women with her own lovely mother. Then suddenly, as she sat smiling in tender remembrance, there flashed into her brain a new thought. Her mother wore a mask, a smooth, calm, perfectly fitting mask, a mask of tolerance, but still a mask. The more she thought of it, the more she realized it. She had been very quick to repudiate the idea when Kepner first suggested it to her. Well, she had been wrong. It was true. Mustn't her mother often be irritated by vulgarity and pettiness? Not being a fool, she must. Yet imagine her going about, showing on her face every passing disgust. Then masks were not necessarily hypocritical. They might simply be the accoutrements of politeness and decency. That was a new thought. During the summer, Alison wrote so much that she was obliged to ask Phil to buy her a new blank book, and she sewed so much that her trunk carried piles of tiny white garments when she returned to town in October. It was good, after all, to get back to her own home. It never looked more attractive than in contrast to that crude summer boarding-house. Alison moved all her sewing things into the little room where she had already established her writing-table, and in that room she came to spend more and more of her time. Her outings were taken in the Fifth Avenue buses and on the park benches. She ate at home generally, sometimes alone, sometimes with Phil. Occasionally she even went out to dinner with him. She discovered a wonderful opportunity to hear good music at some free concerts in one of the department stores, and at some church organ recitals. She used to sit with her eyes closed and dream and plan for the future. In December came the news of the birth of Gertrude's little son. He was to be christened Archibald Terry Rawl and called by his middle name. Mrs. Terry's letters were nothing short of rhapsodies, and Alison could see that the little newcomer was the king of the household. Gertrude wrote a few lines to say that she was beatifically happy, and that she could hardly wait to show her darling to his Aunt Alison, and Kenneth wrote several ecstatic pages. It was all very lovely. Mrs. Terry was planning to come down in March to be with her second daughter. Alison dreaded this greatly. She had never told her mother that she kept no servant, 
and now the truth would have to come out. Phil was sure to be at his worst with a visitor, and Mrs. Terry would be none too comfortably lodged in the little sewing-room, which would have to be converted into a bedroom during her stay. Alison wrote that she feared for her mother's comfort, that she herself was perfectly well, and that she was going to a hospital in March. But Mrs. Terry replied that she could not be happy away from her daughter. However, man proposes and God disposes. Late in February, Mr. Terry slipped on the ice and broke his right arm, and thus put an end to all thought of his wife's leaving him. She would have been surprised if she could have known of her daughter's relief. Alison Howland's little son was born in March, and as she cuddled the tiny form in her arms and held it to her breast, she knew that life was good. This, her son, should be her crown of content and her blessing. Over and over again she whispered prayers of gratitude that so great a gift had come to her. As she lay looking down at that tiny fuzzy head with the funny little palpitating soft spot in its crown, as she felt those baby hands clasping her fingers and saw the vague baby eyes blinking up into hers, she realized at last what happiness meant. End of Book 2 Chapter 6